Welcome to the Addiction in Emergency Medicine and Acute Care podcast. Why does this topic matter? One person in the United States dies from a drug overdose every six minutes. We as healthcare providers must do better to treat addiction, prevent overdoses, and improve the lives of our patients and their families. This podcast is designed to provide you with simple and evidence-based information on substance use disorders that you can use to take better care of your patients on your next shift. Hello, everyone. I am pleased to have you join me for another episode of Addiction in Emergency Medicine and Acute Care. This is Dr. Casey Grover once again as your host. Today's topic will be on methamphetamine psychosis. Hopefully, this will be a very useful episode as I see meth psychosis nearly every shift in my emergency department and nearly every day in people walking around the streets. But before we start, let's briefly go back to episode 32 on the so-called drug-seeking patient. I presented a case in that episode and I ultimately felt that the patient's drug-seeking behavior for opiates was a combination of an opiate use disorder and severe uncontrolled pain. However, as I was doing my final edits on the episode, I realized that I hadn't discussed the possibility of opiate dependence or withdrawal as the cause of the behavior to try to obtain opioids. If you recall from the episode, the patient had been on hydrocodone as an outpatient. During the clinical encounter, I did actually take a detailed history of how the patient was taking hydrocodone, and from what he told me, he was not having any withdrawal symptoms when not taking the hydrocodone, so I did not think, when I was taking care of him, that opiate dependence or opiate withdrawal were contributing to why he was asking for opiates. So, if you were wondering, after listening to last episode, which was episode 32, about the possibility of opiate dependence and opiate withdrawal contributing to the patient's behaviors, there's your answer. Okay, on to this episode, which is again on the topic of methamphetamine psychosis. I picked this topic as I wanted to learn more about it. I, as I mentioned before, see it nearly every day in my emergency department, and I see it in my community all the time. In fact, I dropped my daughter off at a class a few days ago, and as I turned into the parking lot, there was a disheveled man with lots of signs of skin picking who was holding several large pieces of wood, cradling those pieces of wood, and talking to the pieces of wood. Now, I obviously didn't pull over that second and take a history from this person, but playing the odds, that was methamphetamine psychosis. It turns out there isn't a ton of literature on this topic, but I did find two good papers, so we'll get started. The first article was published in the journal Human Psychopharmacology, Clinical and Experimental, in 2019. The title of the article is Methamphetamine-Associated Psychosis, Clinical Presentation, Biological Basis, and Treatment Options. The lead author is Matthew Chiang. The paper begins with some background on the topic. Methamphetamine is a commonly abused substance all over the world, and it is very versatile in how it is used. 
It can be taken orally, nasally, smoked, or given intravenously. It is generally taken to produce a euphoric high, but effects also include a reduction in appetite, inhibition of fatigue, and enhancement of mental acuity, mood, social function, and sexual function. And the authors note, it can cause psychotic symptoms in some users, which the authors call methamphetamine-associated psychosis. The authors move on here to discuss how the diagnosis of methamphetamine-associated psychosis is made. Methamphetamine-associated psychosis falls under the category of substance-induced psychosis, according to the DSM-5. To quote the DSM-5, a substance-induced psychosis is, quote, the presence of hallucinations and delusions developed during or soon after intoxication or withdrawal from a substance or medication known to cause such symptoms, end quote. Unfortunately, it can be very difficult to determine if the psychotic symptoms are due to a primary psychotic disorder, such as schizophrenia, or due to a substance, as there really isn't any test, like a blood test or a scan, that can be done to differentiate the two when a person is experiencing psychotic symptoms. Methamphetamine-associated psychosis has been estimated to affect between one-quarter and one-half of patients who have methamphetamine dependence. Some of the patient factors that may affect the incidence of psychosis with methamphetamine use include individual vulnerability to psychotic disorders, severity of methamphetamine use disorder, and the route of meth use. Having completed this quick summary of methamphetamine use and methamphetamine-associated psychosis, the authors go on to clarify their methods for this study. And this study is a literature review on the topic of methamphetamine-associated psychosis. The authors tried to get the best information they can on various aspects of methamphetamine-associated psychosis from the literature, such as symptoms, risk factors, and treatment. They start with symptoms. Symptoms of methamphetamine-associated psychosis are similar to those of paranoid schizophrenia. Patients may experience persecutory delusions, delusions of reference, and auditory hallucinations. Symptoms will worsen with continued methamphetamine use. However, patients with methamphetamine-associated psychosis do not commonly experience the negative symptoms of schizophrenia, which include anhedonia, avolition, and affective blunting. The authors move on to the onset of meth psychosis as well as the risk factors. They report that there is a wide variety as to when patients using meth develop symptoms, but the average onset is 1.7 to 5.2 years after the onset of meth use. The major risk factors in the development of meth psychosis include higher frequency use of meth, the use of greater quantities of meth, and a greater duration using meth. One study on methamphetamine-associated psychosis reported the following additional risk factors for the development of methamphetamine-associated psychosis. Younger age at first use, higher rates of schizoid and schizotypal personality traits before use, comorbid major depression, comorbid alcohol dependence, and comorbid antisocial personality disorder. 
Other studies showed that a family history of schizophrenia increased the risk of the development of methamphetamine-induced psychosis. The authors also take pause here to discuss that there may be two distinct groups of patients with methamphetamine-associated psychosis. First, there are patients who experience transient psychotic symptoms that resolve shortly once methamphetamine use is stopped. Second, there are patients who experience psychotic symptoms for weeks and months despite cessation of use. As many as 50% of patients who have methamphetamine-induced psychosis fall into this first group where psychotic symptoms resolve quickly with cessation of meth use. As many as 16% of patients, on the other hand, will have persistent psychotic symptoms that last for more than three months. There is even some research that tries to parcel out some of the differences between these two groups, which the authors call transient psychosis and persistent psychosis. For patients with transient psychosis, they experienced persecutory delusions and tactile hallucinations. For patients with persistent psychosis, they experienced delusions of reference, thought interference, and auditory hallucinations. The symptoms in this persistent psychosis group are more similar to the symptoms of a primary psychotic disorder, such as schizophrenia. And this, as an aside from the article, fits with what I see in my practice. We see a lot of delusional parasitosis from meth where I work, which involves tactile hallucinations and persecutory delusions. This may help explain why patients using methamphetamines pick at their skin so much. Back to the article. The authors move on to discuss the relation between methamphetamine-associated psychosis and schizophrenia. Apparently, multiple publications have proposed a stress-vulnerability model of psychosis with meth use. As in, a person may be vulnerable to psychosis, and the meth triggers the psychotic episode. They go on to discuss a few studies and theories about primary psychotic disorders and methamphetamine-associated psychosis, but the bottom line is that it remains difficult to differentiate between substance-induced psychosis and primary psychosis in the acute setting when the person is actively using substances. The authors pivot here to discuss the biological basis of methamphetamine-associated psychosis, and I'll try to stick to the most relevant and informative points. Let's begin with why methamphetamine can cause psychosis. Meth works to increase concentrations of dopamine in multiple areas of the brain. As you may recall from episode 28 on cannabis-induced psychosis, the actual mechanism of how psychosis happens in the brain, including that from schizophrenia, is not well understood. However, it is thought to be due to dysregulation of the dopamine systems in the brain. As such, the overstimulation of the brain by dopamine from methamphetamine leads to dopamine dysregulation and therefore psychosis. There is also some evidence that methamphetamines cause oxidative stress and inflammation in the brain, which contributes to abnormal brain function, including addiction, cognitive deficits, and psychosis. The authors also note that there is definitely a genetic component to methamphetamine-associated psychosis. Several genes have been identified as contributing to susceptibility in methamphetamine-associated psychosis. These genes were all related to schizophrenia in some way, 
and some of them involve disruptions in neurotransmitter function in the brain. And finally, the authors look at imaging studies on methamphetamine psychosis. Multiple studies have shown abnormal glucose metabolism and structural anatomy in the brains of people who chronically use meth, which may also contribute to the development of psychotic symptoms. The authors go into quite a bit of detail here, which I'll breeze through. Bottom line, chronic methamphetamine use changes the brain both in terms of structure and metabolic function. Some of these changes are similar to those seen in people with schizophrenia. We've dug into risk factors, symptoms, and biological mechanisms. Now let's move on to what I need to know on my next shift, which is how to treat methamphetamine-associated psychosis. Before going into specifics, the authors provide a high-level overview of the treatment of methamphetamine-induced psychosis, and it's very intuitive. We need to treat the underlying methamphetamine use so as to get the patient to stop using meth. The authors remind us that many patients will have resolution of their psychotic symptoms rather quickly once they stop using methamphetamines. The authors then move on to discuss specific treatments. They first discuss what I use most in my practice, antipsychotics. Despite how commonly we use antipsychotics for methamphetamine-associated psychosis, there isn't a huge amount of literature on this. One study looked at olanzapine and haloperidol for methamphetamine psychosis and found that both worked in reducing psychotic symptoms by four weeks after treatment, but side effects were less in the olanzapine group. Another study compared catiapine and haloperidol and found that both were effective in reducing psychotic symptoms from methamphetamine use. A third study compared aripiprazole and risperidone and found that while both reduced psychotic symptoms, risperidone caused fewer side effects and had an added benefit of reducing cravings for methamphetamine. A fourth study compared risperidone and haloperidol and found them to be comparable for psychotic symptoms for methamphetamine use. The authors then move on to discuss something that we don't use much in the emergency department or acute care setting, but may be very helpful, which is cognitive behavioral therapy, also known as CBT. There aren't any studies looking specifically at CBT and meth psychosis, but the authors note that CBT can be helpful in the treatment of methamphetamine use disorder, so it could therefore be helpful to decrease methamphetamine use, which would then help reduce or resolve the psychotic symptoms for meth use. The authors move on to discuss several other treatments for methamphetamine use and methamphetamine-induced psychosis, which include electrocompulsive therapy, electroacupuncture, computer and digital-based therapies, mindfulness-based relapse prevention, and exercise-based therapies. I'll skip over these as they're not used in the emergency department or acute care setting, but it's nice to know that there are some promising treatments for methamphetamine use disorder out there. For us in the emergency department and acute care setting, our goal is really to manage the psychotic symptoms and determine a safe disposition for the patient, whether it be psychiatric admission, observation, or discharge home. We can refer patients to substance use treatment and behavioral health as an outpatient where some of these novel therapies may be offered. And with that, the authors conclude their paper. 
They remind us in closing that methamphetamine-associated psychosis is a complex disease that is affected by both genetic and environmental factors, and that methamphetamine-associated psychosis may be transient or persistent. And we still don't have a good way to determine whether a person with psychotic symptoms who is using meth has methamphetamine-associated psychosis or a primary psychotic disorder. Let's move on here to the second paper. It was published in the journal CNS Drugs in 2014. The title is Methamphetamine Psychosis, Epidemiology and Management, and the lead author is Suzette Glasner Edwards. The paper begins with an introduction section, and I will point out some highlights here. Meth is a global problem, and here in the United States, approximately 1 million Americans used meth in 2012. This is obviously older data, and the author moves on in the introduction section to point out that meth was likely to get worse with the arrival of more potent and cheaper forms of meth in the U.S. in the future. A quick aside from the article, the author was correct. I looked up a NIH research report on meth, and in 2020, 2.6 million Americans used meth. Back to the article. The authors continue to point out some general risk factors for methamphetamine use in the United States, which include living in a rural area, Hispanic ethnicity, and Asian ethnicity. In men, being gay or bisexual is a risk factor for meth use. The authors then move on to provide some general information about methamphetamine-related psychiatric symptoms. Prominent psychiatric symptoms include auditory and tactile hallucinations, ideas of reference, and paranoid delusions. There is also, unfortunately, often violent behavior when patients experience psychotic symptoms from using meth. These methamphetamine-related psychiatric symptoms produce social and occupational deterioration and make the treatment of methamphetamine use more difficult. The authors then move on to describe their methods for this paper, and they did a literature search on the topic of methamphetamine psychosis. The authors of this second paper move on to discuss clinical features of psychosis with methamphetamine use. They start by echoing the authors of the first paper that it is very hard in the acute care setting to differentiate between substance-induced psychosis and a primary psychotic disorder. They offer a few tips to differentiate. Number one, if the psychosis seems more severe than what would be expected for the amount and duration of meth used, consider a primary psychotic disorder. Number two, if there are episodes of psychosis in the past at times when meth was not being used, consider a primary psychotic disorder. Number three, if the symptoms of psychosis preceded meth use, consider a primary psychotic disorder. And number four, if the symptoms of psychosis continue despite sustained cessation of meth use, consider a primary psychotic disorder. These may be helpful for us in the acute care setting as asking some of these questions during our history about the timing of psychotic symptoms and meth use may help to parcel out if there is an underlying primary psychotic disorder. The authors add that as many as 40% of patients who use meth will develop transient psychotic symptoms. The authors continue and they look at the clinical course of methamphetamine psychosis. Research on this topic has apparently been going on for as many as 40 years. 
early studies actually showed that psychosis could develop anywhere from one to five days after hourly IV administration of amphetamine. Furthermore, giving oral amphetamine every six hours was able to induce psychosis within 36 hours. When the researchers examined the individuals who developed psychosis from amphetamine in these studies, they found that some, but not all, individuals developed psychosis. They also found that the dose that induced psychosis was variable, and they also found that the most common psychotic symptoms were paranoia and ideas of reference. So based on this, the authors note, consistent with some of the points made in the first paper, some individuals appear to be more vulnerable to methamphetamine psychosis than others. The authors review another study that described two types of methamphetamine psychosis. They describe a delayed lasting type of methamphetamine psychosis in which the psychotic symptoms lasted months as compared to a short and transient methamphetamine psychosis. The delayed lasting type was more common in those who had been using meth for five or more years, and the authors postulate that it is the cumulative toxicity of chronic meth use in the brain that leads to the longer psychotic symptoms. Moving on, the authors next tackle risk factors for meth psychosis, and here are some of the risk factors that they describe. A known psychotic disorder, a family history of a psychotic disorder, polydrug use, affective psychiatric disorders, antisocial personality disorder, and a family history of any psychiatric disorder. There is also some evidence that sleep deprivation can lead to psychotic symptoms with methamphetamine use, which is unfortunate as binging on meth often involves not sleeping for days. What about the duration of methamphetamine psychosis? The authors review the literature on this and it's all over the place. We now know that there appear to be two types of methamphetamine psychosis, one that is very transient and one that lasts much longer. Keeping this in mind, some studies show that meth psychosis resolves within one week. However, other studies show meth psychosis can last as long as one to three months. There also appears to be a subgroup of patients with methamphetamine psychosis in which the meth psychosis converts into a primary psychotic disorder. As in, psychotic symptoms are initially induced by meth, but continue despite cessation of meth use to suggest that there was a baseline predisposition for a psychotic disorder and meth use unmasked or triggered the psychotic disorder. In one study from Thailand, 40% of people with meth psychosis went on to get diagnosed with a primary psychotic disorder due to persistent psychotic symptoms. In patients who have methamphetamine psychosis, the authors also wanted to find out how common recurrence of methamphetamine psychosis is. One study showed that 50% of people admitted to the hospital for methamphetamine psychosis had experienced it before. Some patients in that study had experienced methamphetamine psychosis over 10 times. This study found several risk factors for the recurrence of methamphetamine psychosis, which included resumption of meth use, sleep deprivation, psychological stressors, and the use of other substances. Symptoms in recurrent meth psychosis tended to be the same as in previous episodes. And there also appears to be a sensitization effect 
in which patients are more likely to experience meth psychosis again after a first episode with smaller amounts of meth for shorter durations inducing the psychosis. The authors then move on to discuss the differential diagnosis of meth psychosis, and they cover the same points they made earlier in their paper about how to tell the difference between a primary psychotic disorder and a substance-induced psychotic disorder. Bottom line, it's hard and can be subtle. Once again, here are the features that point towards a primary psychotic disorder. Psychotic symptoms occur during abstinence from substance use, psychotic symptoms began prior to substance use, and psychotic symptoms begin during substance use but are persistent after abstinence. Conversely, psychotic symptoms experienced exclusively during periods of heavy methamphetamine use would suggest a methamphetamine-induced psychosis. If we make the diagnosis of methamphetamine psychosis, what do we do for treatment? Fortunately, the authors tackle this next. The authors review the literature that existed as of 2014 when this second article was written, and their conclusions are pretty similar to those of the first article, which, as a reminder, was written in 2019. Antipsychotic medications such as haloperidol and olanzapine have been shown to block the effects of amphetamine-induced psychosis, and the authors in this second paper note that there is evidence that the second-generation antipsychotics such as olanzapine are just as effective as the first-generation antipsychotics with fewer side effects as compared to first-generation antipsychotics. The authors dive into the pharmacology a little more in this article than in the first article, and they make one very interesting point. Antipsychotics work by being dopamine antagonists. And as we know from previous episodes on this podcast, the pleasurable effects of drugs and behaviors that lead to addiction are mediated by dopamine. Furthermore, methamphetamine causes incredibly large releases of dopamine. The authors point out that the dopamine blockade by antipsychotics can therefore worsen the anhedonia that meth users feel when not using meth and therefore can contribute to relapse. Let's take a minute and unpack this. Meth causes the biggest dopamine release of any drug. As such, when users of methamphetamine are abstinent, they often have severe anhedonia as a result of the fact that they are used to such high levels of dopamine from meth use and their brains without meth have very low levels of baseline dopamine. By blocking dopamine in the brain, antipsychotics actually reduce the activity of whatever residual dopamine is in the brain of methamphetamine users when they are abstinent, and this therefore worsens anhedonia and may trigger people to relapse on methamphetamine. Back to the article. The authors don't actually explicitly say this, but they hint that the course of antipsychotics should be as short as possible to avoid triggering meth relapse by the mechanism that we just described. And, since in many patients with methamphetamine psychosis, the psychotic symptoms will be transient and resolve in one week or less, a short course of antipsychotics for methamphetamine psychosis would seem to be a good approach. The authors also note that there are other symptoms that occur along with methamphetamine psychosis, 
such as anxiety, agitation, and insomnia. They recommend placing patients with methamphetamine psychosis in a calm and quiet setting to avoid overstimulation. Furthermore, medications from other classes, such as benzodiazepines, may be added in to help with anxiety and sleep disruption. Wrapping up the discussion of the treatment of methamphetamine psychosis, the authors highlight the need to provide substance use treatment to reduce further meth use. First, the authors discuss cognitive behavioral therapy for relapse prevention. We again probably won't use this in the acute care setting or the ED very much, but connecting patients to treatment after discharge can be very helpful. It also turns out that CBT can be helpful for managing psychotic symptoms in addition to relapse prevention for methamphetamine use disorder. Second, the authors provide a brief overview of treatment options for methamphetamine use disorder outside of CBT, which include contingency management, mutual support groups, and counseling. Any comorbid psychiatric illness that may be contributing to a desire to use meth, such as anxiety or depression, should be appropriately treated. The authors conclude this paper that there is some emerging evidence that some pharmaceutical agents may be helpful in reducing meth use. Check out episode 26 of this podcast on bupropion and naltrexone for methamphetamine use disorder for a full discussion of a recent trial on pharmacotherapy for methamphetamine use disorder. And that concludes this second paper on the topic. Let's put everything together into some take-home points. Number one, methamphetamine-induced psychosis is the presence of hallucinations and delusions developed during or soon after intoxication or withdrawal from methamphetamine. Number two, methamphetamine-associated psychosis is common and is estimated to affect between 25 and 50% of patients who use meth. Number three, risk factors for methamphetamine psychosis include higher frequency of meth use, greater quantity of meth use, greater time using meth, younger age of first meth use, polydrug use, comorbid mental illness, schizoid personality traits, schizotypal personality traits, sleep deprivation, and antisocial personality disorder. Number four, symptoms of methamphetamine-induced psychosis include persecutory delusions, delusions of reference, tactile hallucinations, and auditory hallucinations. Patients may exhibit violent behavior while experiencing methamphetamine psychosis. Number five, it can be difficult to determine if psychotic symptoms in patients who use meth are from meth use or from a primary psychotic disorder. Generally, psychotic symptoms that only occur during meth use are likely to be from meth. Psychotic symptoms that occur before a period of using meth resolve after cessation of the use of meth or occur during periods of abstinence are likely to be from a primary psychotic disorder. Furthermore, patients with methamphetamine-associated psychosis do not commonly experience the negative symptoms of primary psychotic disorders such as anhedonia, avolition, and affective blunting. Number six, some patients with methamphetamine psychosis will have transient psychotic symptoms lasting less than a week, while others will have persistent psychotic symptoms that can last for months. For those with persistent symptoms, the risk of having an underlying primary psychotic disorder 
is much greater. Number seven, treatment for methamphetamine psychosis involves the use of antipsychotics to treat psychotic symptoms and second-generation antipsychotics such as olanzapine, catiapine, and risperidone appear to be the treatment of choice due to efficacy and reduced side effects as compared to other drugs. Patients with methamphetamine psychosis should be in a calm and minimally stimulating environment, and other medications may be needed to assist with the management of insomnia and anxiety. And finally, number eight. Treatment for methamphetamine psychosis also involves treating the underlying methamphetamine use disorder, as recurrent use of meth will cause recurrent methamphetamine psychosis. Refer patients with meth psychosis for treatment of their methamphetamine use disorder. Some modalities for the treatment of methamphetamine use can include cognitive behavioral therapy, mutual support groups, counseling, contingency management, and pharmacotherapy. And that is the end of this episode. This was a huge topic, and I learned quite a bit from our deep dive on this topic, and I hope you did too. If you're willing, please give me a review on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. I'd love the feedback. You can also email me at addictionemac at fastmail.com if you'd like to send me an email to provide feedback or give suggestions for future episodes. And with that, I want to thank you for listening. Thank you also for what you do. And don't forget, treating substance use disorders saves lives.